The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship under the filling of God the Holy Spirit so that we can learn the Word and the Holy Spirit then makes it understandable to us. When we believe it, He transfers it into the innermost recesses of our mentality called the heart. And there He can bring it to our consciousness for application later on. So it's all part of the tremendous resources, grace resources that God has given us in order to learn doctrine today. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship. Whenever we sin, we're instantly out of fellowship. We grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. And that means that we need to recover from that sin through simple confession, which means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God, and He instantly forgives us, and we're back in fellowship. So let's begin with a word of prayer, then I'll open. Father, we thank you for this privilege to gather together around your word this evening and to have this fellowship together based upon the truth of your word. Father, let us not forget that this is not a human opinion or human interpretation, but that this is your word and it is absolute truth. And you have revealed these things to us because there is no other way for us to learn them. Pray that we would be responsive to the challenge of what we learn that it might be beneficial to our own spiritual advance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, and we continue our study in the book of Daniel. By way of review, we realize that what has happened to Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, is that they have have been taken to as captives to Babylon. They're probably 14 years of age. This seemed to be, the, according to Plato, according to uh, several other ancient sources, this was the standard age that the Persians started the training of young men for future government service, and it seems likely that that's about the time the Babylonians did as well. So they're young men. They don't have much experience under their belt in terms of life, other than the fact that they have seen their hometown surrounded by the enemy forces, and then they have been taken as hostages to secure the obedience of their king, who is a relative of theirs, back in Jerusalem. 
and they have been taken to Babylon, and now they're going to be taken through an enforced training situation. Now, Babylon, as we have studied, always represents in Scripture the highest and best of man's efforts. Babel goes all the way back to the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 10, Babel was established as a, uh, a tower was established there. It was a city that was set against God. So there's always this conflict in the Scriptures between Babylon, on the one hand, representing man's best, man's efforts to solve his problems on his own, man's best to establish a civilization or a culture that is totally um, independent of God and to erect a structure that somehow, that completely excludes God and tries to prevent God from interfering with man's life. That's the general thrust and bent of man's sin nature, is the sin nature does not want divine interference. We just don't want God to really talk too much about our life. We want to do it the way we want to do it, live life on our own terms. But Babylon represents the kingdom of man, which is the larger dimension of human autonomy. And we have reviewed the characteristics of the kingdom of man. And the kingdom of man is always grounded upon a thought system. And that thought system in the scriptures is called worldliness. It's from the Greek word cosmos, from which we get our word cosmetics, and has to do with an orderly system of thinking. And there are various systems of thinking that Satan promotes in the cosmic system, all of which, all of which are similar in two regards. One is they're based on arrogance, the idea that man is independent of God. And secondly, they're based on an antagonism to God. Now, what happens is whenever we are immersed in the pagan, any kind of pagan system, we are always going to come up against systems that attack us from those two directions. Arrogance, the idea that man can solve all of our problems. We don't need divine interference. We don't need divine help. Man, after all, is the measure of all things. That's the standard line from humanism. The second attack is antagonism. There's always going to be a, a hatred, an antagonism, an assault on any believer who's trying to take a stand for the Word of God because the world does not want that testimony. They do not want to have to deal with this uh, witness that there is a God and that God's way is the only way. Now, we, around here we call... Cosmic thinking, also human viewpoint thinking, and the scripture identifies it as the thinking of demons. So when we think of any kind of humanistic system of thought, it is ultimately called the doctrine of demons. And the thing about that, that Daniel and his friends are faced as they are taken as captives to Babylon, as they are in an environment that is almost unequaled in human history for opposition to Doctrine, opposition to the truth, opposition to God, and they're going to be in some of the greatest pressure situations ever known to anyone in human history. None of us probably will ever face the kind of hostility, the kind of rejection, and the potential punishment for uh, taking a stand for God that these men faced. And yet, as young men, 13, 14 years of age, they, had a, they drew upon the spiritual resources of doctrine in their soul that enabled them to take a stand against this great power structure 
in which they found themselves. We see that they, uh, as they were immersed in this power structure, that there was an attempt by the administration of Babylon to force them to conform to Babylonian thought in every, in all practices and including the religion. And one of the ways that was done was through renaming them. And we saw in verse 7, or 6 and 7, how these men were renamed. All of their names originally had a testimony to God in them. There was something about their name that indicated that God, Yahweh, or El, another term, the general term for God, generic term for God in Hebrew, that God was their protector, their names witnessed their relationship to God. And so their names were changed, and they all included either a prefix or suffix of some uh, Babylonian deity, indicating that now they were under the protection of Babylonian gods because obviously their god had failed to protect them, and so they were now captives, and so they were going to be protected by the gods of Babylon. This is one of the reasons that God so blesses these four men in this time, is God is going to demonstrate through Daniel, through Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that he has not been defeated, that indeed he is still the sovereign God of history, and he is the one who has allowed the Babylonians to defeat Israel. But Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are faced with a personal crisis, one that every one of us faces, and that is when do we fight the world system? When do we fight the satanic system around us, and when do we uh, just sort of go along? How do, we can't fight everything. There's, at every point, we're at opposition with human viewpoint. We can't battle everything. We don't have the resources. We don't have the time. We have to be able to pick and choose our battles. And the battle that they chose was a battle over their diet. Now, as we're going to see, the reason they chose that is because there are specific commands in the Old Testament for, for their diet. They're not just picking something that is a theological principle. They're not just picking something that is some uh, abstract deduction that is probably true. They're picking a very clear issue in Scripture that they're being called upon to compromise. And that's an important lesson to learn. We have to pick our battles, and we're going to see how they handle this confrontation as we go through these verses beginning in verse 8. In verse 8, we read that, that, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Verse 9, Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. Now what has taken place is back in verse 5 is that the, uh, excuse me, in verse, verse 5, this new Bible, it's almost impossible for anyone with, unless you have 20-year-old eyes to read the verse numbers. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies. This is the problem. The king himself is taking care of their diet. Among the diet, there were a variety of animals. Some of these animals were going to be uh, clean. Some of these animals would be unclean, according to the Mosaic law. And they could not eat the unclean animals without it ceremonially defiling them. 
Now, we have to remember that they're not in Jerusalem. They're not going to be going into the temple. So it would not be a factor for them uh, in terms of their daily spiritual life and worship in the temple. Nevertheless, it does affect their uh, relationship with God, so they're going to make an issue out of it. Now, back in verse 5, we read that... um, the king appointed for them a daily provision, and that's an interesting word in the Hebrew. It's, it's the word patbag, and it comes from an old Persian word, patabaga, which means a portion or assignment. And the only reason I pointed it out is because, once again, it indicates how uh, something about the date of Daniel, that it's an old Persian word that only someone living at the time of Daniel would be familiar with. Liberals come along and try to... Uh, late-date Daniel. They try to date it into the 1st century or 2nd century B.C. uh, because liberals don't like the idea that God's actually involved in human history and can forecast the future accurately. And so on that assumption, they have rejected the idea that there's real prophecy in Daniel, and therefore it couldn't have been written in 537 or 538 B.C. because then it's filled with prophecy and and that actually gives a testimony to the reality and existence of God. So instead, they, they lay dated so that instead of writing prophecy, it would just be writing history. But no one in 150 or even 200 B.C. would be familiar with old Persian words. It, the language was a dead language by that time. So this, once again, the vocabulary of Daniel uh, sustains the position that this is a work done in the Uh, 6th century B.C. We start off by saying that that, uh, Daniel made up his mind. Now, the Hebrew Hebrew does not say made up his mind. It's a phrase that's a compound of two words. First of all, the Hebrew word sum, which means to put, to place, to set, or to appoint, plus the noun lave for heart. So literally it reads, Daniel set his heart. Now, in everyday English idiom, we have a tendency to try to make heart mean emotion. That is not how the Bible uses the word heart. We'll use the Greek equivalent Greek words to set up our diagram. The mentality of the soul is comprised of two compartments, one inside the other, like concentric circles. The one, the innermost, is called the heart. The cardia in the Greek are the are lave in the Hebrew, K-A-R-D-I-A. The outer part of the mind is the nous, N-O-U-S. Now, when the cardia is the innermost recesses of our thinking, the core of our beliefs, that which tends to control our actions, what the, our deepest convictions. What happens is, in the New Testament church age period, pastor-teacher communicates doctrine. Because every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and if you're in fellowship, you're filled by means of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit functions to make that doctrine understandable. He does not understand it for us. He makes it understandable. But we still have to exercise our little gray cells 
And we have to pay attention to what is being taught, and then we have to think about it. The Bible calls that meditation. We think about what is being taught. You don't just write it down in your notebook and go home and think about it the next time you come to Bible class. The Holy Spirit makes it understandable, and we use our thinking to understand it. Once we understand it, then the issue becomes whether we accept it or reject it. We either believe it or we don't believe it. You cannot believe something you don't understand. Now, you might have heard something 150 times and think you understand it. But just because you can repeat the words back doesn't mean you understand it. I can't tell you how many times I have gone through subjects with the Scripture time and time again, taught things that I was taught when I was younger, taught when I was in seminary, and all of a sudden one day I'm reading it, reading another passage, and all of a sudden I put two and two together, and I come to realize what this is really talking about. And no longer am I just teaching something that I was taught, teaching something that I had um, read many times, but I finally come to understand what this really means in all of its relationships and all of its implications. And see, too often we confuse the fact that we can understand the words the pastor uses. We confuse the fact that we can repeat what he said to someone else with actually understanding the concepts involved. So we have to first understand it, and only then can we believe it or reject it. Once we do that, if we believe it, God the Holy Spirit then stores it into the innermost recesses of our thinking. Before that, it is simply what the New Testament calls gnosis or academic knowledge. Everything has to be academic knowledge before it's applied knowledge. Remember when I was in junior high school, before we ever got behind the wheel of a car, we had a classroom session for a classroom session for, for auto mechanics. We had to learn everything about how a car operated. That was just academic knowledge, no applied knowledge yet. Uh, that didn't come until the next semester. But everything starts first with academic knowledge and then goes to applied knowledge. You can't skip over the academics. And that's what happens too often in churches today because too, people are too shallow in their understanding of the learning process. They want to just jump, oh, pastor, that was too academic last night. I want to, I want to hear something that's practical. You know, that just doesn't relate to my problems. Well, if you really stick with it, eventually you'll understand what the dynamics are. It has to be academic knowledge first, and then when we believe it, the Holy Spirit stores it in our soul as epinosis or full knowledge, and then He recalls it to our thinking at the proper times, and we can apply it. That, too, is done under the uh, principle of walking by means of God the Holy Spirit, And that is the application of doctrine, what the Old Testament calls wisdom or chokmah. And it is the application of doctrine, and God the Holy Spirit then uses that applied doctrine, uses that applied doctrine to strengthen our souls. That's what we talk about when I talk about building the soul fortress. That's that edification that the New Testament talks about. And it, it strengthens our souls and builds a structure, and that structure is our protection when we're in adversity. And so we see that even by the young age of 13 or 14, Daniel and his three friends have all built this soul fortress on the Old Testament principles so that they are operating within that framework during their entire time 
in living in a foreign uh, power and operating under the pressure that is brought against them both by peers and by those who had been their enemy. And because they are able to apply doctrine inside the structure of the soul fortress, then they are able to withstand this pressure. They're able to relax. They're able to make wise decisions from a position of strength. And it's interesting that as you look at the Daniel, what we learn in the scriptures about Daniel and his friends is Daniel is one of only two people in the Old Testament where we're not told anything about their carnality. Joseph is the other one. The only thing negative said about Joseph is that he was a little impatient when he tried to jump the gun to get the uh, uh, one of the other men who, who he was in jail with to, to uh, uh, remind the Pharaoh that he was in jail and to get him out early. He wasn't going to relax and wait for God's timing. He wanted to, uh, to hurry things up a little bit. That's the only thing negative we know of Joseph, and we don't know of anything negative about Daniel. God is trying to show some things about how doctrine has allowed these men, Joseph and Daniel are very similar, that it is doctrine that allows these men, both operating in extreme pagan environments, operating in situations where there's tremendous hostility to the Word of God, where everything that goes on in those cultures was dominated by a false religious system. Idolatry was rampant. There were all kinds of uh, uh, sacrifices, worship of the, of the uh, phallic cult, fertility religions, everything that you can possibly think of was going on in those cultures. And there was pressure because these men were in government positions. There was pressure from co-workers. There was pressure from the uh, highest executive power in the land to conform, and yet they took their stand because they had learned the Word of God and it provided them with the strength to withstand that information, that, that pressure. And we see the key in this first phrase Daniel made up his mind, he set his heart. This refers to volition. Volition is the issue in the Christian way of life. It emphasizes our personal responsibility, that we're accountable for the decisions that we make. God has provided us with the most incredible salvation that we could ever imagine. It is ours free of charge. Jesus Christ paid the price. We don't. Along with that salvation, at the instance of, instant of faith alone and Christ alone, we're told that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. That means that we are given an incredible array of spiritual assets so that we can face and handle any situation, any problem in life. Whatever the pressure is, the Word of God tells us how to handle it and how to face it. But those assets are only activated by our volition. It starts with our decision to make the Word of God the highest priority in our life, and then it goes on by, by exercising our volition to stay filled by, with the Spirit to walk by means of the Spirit, and to apply doctrine. We realize that failure to do so means self-induced misery, that problems will pile up upon problems and beget even more problems. We realize that as we go through the path of carnality, we will develop an inability to accurately understand and evaluate the situations in our lives and discern what's really going on because we don't understand what's really happening or what the issues are in decisions, we'll start to make bad decisions. Because we're dominated by the sin nature, we're going to make bad decisions from a position of weakness. And the only solution is the Word of God. 
what we have to do to recover from that is to use 1 John 1, 9 and to confess our sins and we're instantly forgiven and we're restored to the filling of the Holy Spirit, restored to, we recover fellowship with God and that means we're back inside that soul fortress, back inside that protected environment where we can apply doctrine. Now, Daniel set his heart. That mean, That's more than just making a decision today and then tomorrow you forget about it. It means he thought about it deeply and profoundly, and then he made a commitment that was irreversible. We see the same kind of thing in another passage in the Old Testament in Ezra chapter 7. Ezra was a priest that was involved in the return of the Jews after the Babylonian captivity. Daniel's at the beginning of the Babylonian captivity, and he lives through that entire period. Daniel probably did not die until... Uh, 536, 535, maybe even 534, we don't know. We know that he lived as long as about 537 B.C. Ezra wrote around the time of the rebuilding of the temple, which was about 516. So that's some uh, 20 years after Daniel died. Well, it's easy to assume that Ezra, as a captive, in, was born a captive in Babylon, that he probably sat in one of Daniel's Bible classes when Daniel was an old man. And if he didn't know Daniel personally, he at least was familiar with who Daniel was. I doubt there was a Jew in captivity in Babylon who didn't know who Daniel was and hadn't been impressed with Daniel's uh, behavior and Daniel's testimony. He would have been completely familiar with Daniel's decision-making. And he would have been familiar with what Daniel had written, and he would have been familiar with Daniel's decision here in Daniel 1.8. So Ezra did the same thing. Ezra had set his heart. He made a decision. He committed himself to a course of action. Now, the idea of setting your heart is it's not making an emotional decision. It's not being swayed by the fact that somebody else did this and, oh, wouldn't it be great to be like them? And so you make that decision one day and the next day, as soon as you get a little a test on that decision, you easily break down. This is a firm commitment. It's something that has been well thought out. It is not just an off-the-cuff decision. So it's not based on sentimentality. It's not based on the enthusiasm of his friends. But it is based on something that they have thought out. So Ezra set his heart to do three things. First, to study the law of the Lord. That shows what his priority was. He made doctrine the number one priority in his life. He recognized that doctrine was truth, the Word of God was truth, and no matter what else he did, if he didn't base his life on truth, everything would be useless. So he started with the, with the priority of the Word of God. He set his heart, he made up his mind and set his course to study the law of the Lord and then to practice it. It wasn't just academic learning. He wasn't just out to satisfy intellectual curiosity. He wasn't just going to cram his notebook full of notes about the Bible, but he was going to learn it for the purpose of applying it. It was going to revolutionize his thinking, revolutionize his life. So he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and then third, to teach it. Because that was his role as a priest, was to communicate the Word of God to people and to teach it. First time I ran across this verse, I think I was a senior in, in college, and I read this verse and realized that if I was going to go into the pastorate, that this had to be uh, sort of a motto for my life. And I think that anyone who has 
an inclination of going into the pastoral ministry needs to read Ezra 7.10 and make this a motto for their life. This means that if you're going into a teaching ministry, it has to dominate everything. Everything else takes second place to the preparation necessary to become a teacher of the Word of God. Now, Daniel understood this as well in terms of his role, and so he made a decision, an irreversible decision to set his course not to defile himself. He made up his mind that he would not defile himself. Now, that comes from the Hebrew word ga'al. It's the, in the hithpa'el stem, which is the, usually the, the causative stem. So he was not going to do anything that would cause himself to be defiled. Now, the word ga'al is a homonym. Homonym is a word that, that is spelled the same, but, but have, they have different meanings. There's another Hebrew word, ga'al, which means to redeem, but that's not this word. This word comes, again, it indicates the Aramaic background of Daniel. Remember I said in the introduction that much of Daniel was written in Aramaic. So uh, this is an Aramaic loan word that came into Hebrew, and it means to defile. And it refers to either moral defilement or ceremonial defilement. Now, this is the issue here related to the dietary law, is that by eating something forbidden in the Mosaic law, and those stipulations are spelled out in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, 3 through 20, that if you... Eat that food, then you are ceremonially unclean. It doesn't mean that that was a sin, but that God was using those dietary laws and various other laws to demonstrate that sin affected every area of man's life. Usually the, the animals, the foods that were forbidden were, were related to animals that were scavengers, touched dead bodies, had something to do with death. Death was the penalty for sin, and therefore if you touched anything related to death, it was a uh, symbolic of being related to sin, that, that indicated a breaking of fellowship with God. So Daniel had made a decision that he was not going to defile himself. Uh, we might even apply that to today. He made a decision to walk by the Holy Spirit, and he was going to do everything he possibly could not to sin. Now, that's not possible, but he was going to give it his maximum effort to stay in fellowship. He was not going to cause do anything that would cause a disruption in his fellowship with God. Now, notice, this is a 14-year-old boy. This is not somebody who's been to seminary. This is not somebody who is making their life work uh, somehow professional Christian ministry. This is a young man that, in fact, because of his dedication to the Lord, because he's focused on doctrine, which is going to give him real, the real wisdom he's going to need to be successful in life, he's going to rise to not only the second highest position in the Babylonian Empire, but after that empire is defeated by the Persians, he'll become the second highest person in the Persian Empire. That kind of success can only come and lived out the way Daniel did because of his uh, understanding of doctrine. I don't know of another instance in all of history where any individual has been in a high position of authority in one kingdom, and then when the conquerors come in and destroy that kingdom, kingdom, elevate that individual to the same position in their kingdom. That shows how remarkable an individual Daniel was. But nevertheless, don't put him on a pedestal. Daniel has a sin nature just like you do and just like I do. He's, he, he's not tempted any less than we are. He's not deity like Jesus Christ was. He is a man of like nature just like we are. Uh, 
And the issue is that he made a decision, he made a commitment, and it was no easier for him than it is for us, but he made that decision. He purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. And the reason was because those, those, the, the food items were first dedicated to the, to the gods in the Babylonian pantheon. That was the standard operating procedure. What they would do is they would take the food down to the temple, dedicate the food to the gods so that the gods would bless it. And everybody wanted the blessing of the gods and, and that the gods would protect them if they ate the, the right food. And so, of course, Nebuchadnezzar, as the, as the king, made sure that all of his food was blessed by the gods. So if you ate the food, you were, in effect, validating the entire religious system of the Babylonians. And the last thing that Daniel and the others wanted to do was validate the pagan thinking of that culture. So there was two problems. One is by eating the food, it would make them ceremonially unclean. And two, by eating the food, it would compromise their, their testimony. And it would compromise their devotion to God and make it seem as if they were validating the paganism of the culture around them. So they were picking their battle. Now, this was not an easy decision for these men to make. First of all, this was a personal order from the king. And everything we know about Daniel and, and the others is that they were brought up to respect authority. They seem to be very polite. They're well-mannered. The way they approach every situation shows that they have tremendous respect for those in power. They're not antagonistic. They're not rebellious. They're not being confrontational. But they are uh, very concerned with uh, doing what is right. So their, their tendency, because of their training, would be to obey the authority. And this was a personal order from the king. And along with that, in, in oriental cultures at that time, if you disobeyed the king, the penalty was usually death. So there was a certain amount of pressure on making a decision like this. Secondly, the, natural, secondly, the pressure from their peers and the other authorities, the, uh, the man who was over all of the training for these young men and all of his assistants, uh, th- those men would have put a tremendous amount of pressure on them because they knew that it would affect their job as well. If they didn't eat right, then uh, if they lost weight or they lost in strength, didn't perform well, then that would reflect poorly on them, and they might not only lose their job but lose their, lose their lives. So there was pressure not only from the other Jewish young boys there, who apparently none others took a stand like they did. All the others were, were willing to compromise. After all, you know, they were using all those rationalizations we all use, that it's everyone else is eating the king's food, so that, that must make it okay. After all, God's really deserted us. He let us be taken captive, so why should we honor God? He hasn't honored us. Furthermore, they could rationalize, well, we're not in Jerusalem, our family won't see us, and we're not going to be going to the temple anyway, so what effect does it have? Let's just go ahead and compromise. And, and of course, if we don't go along with this, it may affect our eventual position, it may affect our career, and um, we'll be known as troublemakers, so let's just go along. Don't make waves. We're in the enemy's country. Let's just take it as as easy as we can. So there would be pressure from their peers to conform as well as from the authorities that were placed over them. So they would daily face ridicule, contempt, uh, insults from those around him. 
then last but not least is the food that was that they were turning down was the best food in the land. Uh, the king had probably much beyond what we would consider to be a five-star restaurant. He had the best chefs in the land, the best food in the land. And so these men were going to be eating the very best food and drinking the very best wine available in the ancient world on a daily basis. And so with all those delicacies in front of them, you would imagine that uh, when faced with that, eating all of those various foods versus just a vegetarian diet of vegetables and grains and breads, that there would be a tremendous temptation to uh, want to uh, eat the delicacies put before them. So it wasn't an easy decision. Nevertheless, they made up their mind to not defile themselves and to by not eating the king's choice food. Daniel 1.9. Now God granted Daniel favor. Notice, Daniel makes a decision and then God is the one who's working to bring about the fruits of that decision. Daniel doesn't cause this. God causes it. Daniel makes the right decision, and then God moves to support that decision. God granted. The Hebrew word there is natan, which is the word for to give, to grant, to bestow, and it always reminds us of God's grace. It's never earned. It is freely given. As we have studied so many times, God does not bestow blessings because of what we do. God bestows blessings at the point of salvation, and he doesn't distribute them until we've demonstrated the maturity to handle it. Well, Daniel and these three men, by the decisions they're making, demonstrate that they're mature enough to handle the responsibilities that God's going to give them. So God moves to grant favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. The word for favor is the word chesed, loyalty. Notice this. The leader, the, the servant, the, the man who's placed in charge of the, of, of the men, uh, Ashpenaz, who is the master of the eunuchs or the master of the court officials, really is how it should be understood, that he, is, he ha- looks favorably on these young men. He looks favorably upon them because they're not troublemakers. They didn't approach the problem like a troublemaker. They don't challenge his authority when they question uh, the matter of the diet. They're going to be polite. They're going to be well-mannered. They're going to show respect. This is very important. They have authority orientation. You can't get anywhere in life without uh, recognizing the principle of authority and respect for authority. So because of that, because of the, the way the men, these young men, these boys, handled the problem, because they went to the leaders, they went to those over them with respect, with deference, they did it in a, in a way that showed that they weren't being rebellious, that it, it indicated that they were loyal to those men over them. And in return, the men over them were loyal to them. See, that's a principle of leadership. Whether you're a leader in the home, leader at work, whether you have employees under you, whether you, no matter what position you're in, if you're in any kind of uh, leadership position, loyalty works both ways. It flows up and it flows down. Not only do you, should you expect uh, your, the people under you to be loyal to you, but you need to be loyal to them. And God granted favor. It's chesed, which means loyalty and love and faithfulness. And so that here Ashpenaz, who is the master of the court officials, has developed a liking for Daniel and these men, and he's loyal to them because of 
the way they're handling the situation. They're not trying to make him look bad. They're not going to put him in a bad light. And they've shown tremendous respect for him. And the second word that we find here is that uh, they have found favor and compassion from the Hebrew word rachamim. The I-M is a plural of intensity. And it comes from the literal word for bowels. And it indicates compassion. It's a Hebrew idiom for compassion or sympathy. So God works behind the scenes to cause Ashpenaz to look with favor and compassion upon these men and look favorably upon their request. But he has a problem. He has a problem. Look at verse 10. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel... The commander of the officials, which is really the commander of the officials, he's not hasn't been emasculated. We covered that last time that the term eunuch had become a technical term for the for the uh, bureaucrats serving in the administration of the uh, of the king. That the chief of the eunuchs or the chief administrator said to Daniel, "I fear my lord the king. He's afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. There's a death penalty for violating the king's mandate. I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your food and drink." For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. See, he's got a problem. He he wants to grant their their request, but he knows that if it doesn't work out, then it's his head on the chopping block. But then in verse 11, Daniel says to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over them. Now, notice, in verse 11, there's a time gap. He is, the New King James translates this, the steward. The Hebrew word is Meltzar. It's the overseer. This is a person who is uh, second or third in command, who is specifically responsible for the oversight of the education of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So apparently some time went by. First of all, here's the strategy. He goes to, to Ashpenaz, makes the request. Ashpenaz says, Daniel, I'd really like to do it, but what happens if you become weak? What happens if, if it doesn't work out? What happens if you, you uh, don't perform as well as the other men? Then my head's on the chopping block. So Daniel went home. He probably prayed about it because we know from Daniel's life later on that was a major factor in Daniel's life. Three times a day he prayed. So he goes back. He prays about it. He thinks about it. And he, now he approaches the man who's directly over them with a solution. Let's, let's try to solve the problem. What's a workable solution here? And he said, why don't we give it a little test? Verse 12, test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then in verse 13 he says, then let our appearance be observed in your presence. Let's have a little pragmatic examination here. After ten days, we'll see if it works out. Let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. See, you make the decision. Let's have a little test. When ten days are up, then you evaluate and you make the decision. So he, that is the Meltzar, the steward, listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. So for ten days they were on a diet of vegetables, grains, breads, and water. And at the end of those ten days, verse 15, at the end of those ten days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. Now, let me tell you, that's a miracle. Any of you have been on a diet, 
where you've been on a low-fat diet or a low-carb diet, know that if you're eating just vegetables and water and uh, grains and breads, that you're going to be uh, losing weight. But what happened at the end of this period is they've gained weight. They're in better shape than the other men in the group. And this impressed the uh, steward who was over them. And verse 16 concludes, Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables, probably on a day-to-day basis. If at any moment over the next three years, if he had seen them getting weak or a failure on their part, he would have restored the diet. But what they did was he, they had appealed to him, they had a test, and they demonstrated that their way was better. Now, there's some principles that we can learn from this about how to pick and pick our battles and how to confront the human viewpoint system around us. First of all, carefully choose your battle. You can't fight everything. Don't waste your energies fighting against things that are non-essential or not crucial. Carefully choose your battle. They're picking a key battle. Now remember, they're, they're given names from the pantheon of Babylonian deities. They don't challenge that. They're being forced to go through an education system where they're going to be taught all kinds of concepts from their pagan version of evolution to uh, astrology, divination, necromancy, all kinds of other things that were being taught as part of the curriculum in Babylon. They don't fight that. They don't challenge the teachers. Remember, in any classroom you're in, if a teacher is teaching something you don't agree with, if you're in a biology classroom and they're teaching evolution, or if you and you need to communicate this to your kids, if you're in a history class and they're teaching uh, liberal views of history, they're teaching Marxism or socialism, your job is to make the grade and pass the course. Your job is not to straighten out the professor. So what you do is you keep your mouth shut unless you get an opportunity under the principle of biblical wisdom to to say something. But generally, you keep your mouth shut. You don't challenge their authority. You don't challenge the teacher's position. You learn what they want you to learn. You regurgitate it on the test, and you use it as an opportunity to understand how the human viewpoint system works, thinks, and operates so that you can use it against them later on. But you don't challenge them in the classroom. You just learn what they want you to learn and regurgitate it. Carefully choose your battles. Don't fight on something that you're not going to win and is not a key issue. Second, operate on humility and authority orientation. Always be polite. Always be well-mannered. Don't be sarcastic. Don't be rude. Don't challenge the person's authority over you. Learn how to do it in a respectful manner. Third, Anticipate possible answers. In a classroom situation, in in school, that may mean go out and investigate, do some research as to what the alternatives might be. Anticipate possible answers and determine your counter moves. That's what Daniel did. He went home, he thought about it, he had an answer. It was maybe. Now, he eventually got the answer of yes, we'll go along with your plan. Later on in Daniel, he's going to be told no, and we're going to see how he handles that. But here, he anticipates a possible answer, gets the answer maybe. He looks at what his options are and develops a counter move and a counter suggestion which appeals, this is the fourth point, because he knows his opponent, 
because he knows his opponent, he understands the dynamics of the pagan system. He can't appeal to them on the basis of spiritual values. He does, notice he doesn't go, well, the Word of God tells me that I have to eat a certain way, so because of that, you need to, to line up with what the Bible says. He doesn't approach it that way. He approaches it on a value that is inherent within the pagan system. And the pagan value system is success, and the pagan value system is pragmatism. So Daniel appeals to them on the basis of the values in his system and says, okay, let's see what's going to work. And that's because he knows his opponent. He understands the dynamics of the human viewpoint system he's confronting. And he appeals to their value system. Now, he's not compromising himself. This isn't the same thing as when you're witnessing, you don't want to go over in and, and assume their position. He's not doing that. He's appealing to them on the basis of his own value system. Let's try it out. You'll see that it works. Point number five. An explanation of the problem can be an opportunity to witness. You don't have to. Don't Sometimes... If you bring in spiritual things, you're just going to aggravate the situation. But obviously, Daniel, when he explained the situation to him, he went to the chief of the eunuchs back in verse 8 and said, said uh, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. He explained the situation to him. That gave Daniel an opportunity to witness. And over the subsequent years, their stand for the truth of God's word and the reality of the existence of the God of Israel became known throughout all of Babylon. And that just increased their witness and their testimony. So an explanation of the problem can be an opportunity to witness. But that doesn't mean that you want to go up and slap the professor or whoever the person is, uh, your boss or whomever, with, with the Bible. Now, you run into the same thing. I've used an academic situation because that's what we have here. But the same thing can happen when, with your employer or, um, or the company you work for. They have certain policies mandated by a pagan uh, government system, policies that run counter to divine institution principles of, of human government, of family, uh, many things that you may think are not in line with the Scriptures. So you have to implement those policies, and you have to learn to do that with wisdom and without compromising your own understanding of Scripture. Sometimes you can't do that, and that means you have to go look for another job. Sometimes you, you, you can do it, and sometimes you're going to have to appeal to your boss on a, on a basis that, um, that appeals to him in order to avoid that uh, compromising your own position. Now, Daniel 1.15 says, At the end of ten days, their appearance was even better. They were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. And then the result is given in verse 17. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Now, this doesn't mean they sailed through their courses with a 4.0 average and never cracked a book or did their homework. Now, that's not what it's saying. See, they had to go home and they had to do their homework and they had to learn and they had to cram and they had to study and they had to work hard, but then God blessed those efforts so that they not only made the grade, but they came out number one, two, three, and four in their class. They were ahead of everybody else. God was the one who saw to that. He helped them understand what they were studying, and he helped them apply it. The word knowledge here just refers to basic knowledge. It's translated science, 
earlier in in this section the scientific uh, the scientific discipline of that day knowledge and intelligence and intelligence here is from the Hebrew word haskil which has to do with the mental activity related to knowledge knowledge was just learning the facts learning the data learning the information but then they had to put that information together they had to correlate they had to be able to then apply it in real life situations they had to be able to to develop skill with that uh, that information. They had to be able to make good decisions and they had to be able to demonstrate discernment. They had to be able to uh, think critically. By thinking critically, I don't mean that they were critical, but they were able to evaluate uh, all of the options and come up with creative and innovative solutions to problems. So we're told that, that God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Branch of literature there refers to the Hebrew word sefer, which refers to the scrolls. This was the Babylonian library. They didn't have scrolls. They had clay tablets. The clay tablets were uh, cuneiform tablets, and they had to learn that language. And we know from archaeological discoveries that there were huge libraries in the ancient world. Ashurbanipal's library in Nineveh was enormous. Recently, a discovery was made of over a thousand clay tablets at one of, at a secondary site that was one of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, libraries, and they had to master all of that information. So they were given not, uh, intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Wisdom is the Hebrew word chokmah, which means application. So they had skill. But then Daniel was given something extra. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. All kinds of visions and dreams. And so we need to look at the biblical doctrine of visions and dreams. People get terribly confused over this and think that God speaks to them in a dream or that God still communicates to us in a vision. And we have to look at what the Bible says about this. I think you'll find that our discoveries are quite informative. First of all, Learn something about dreams in general. There are 22 dreams in the Scriptures, 16 in the Old Testament, 6 in the New Testament. Now, that's not much. Over the course of 3,000 years, that's very little activity by God in terms of dreams. Of these, 11 of the 16 Old Testament dreams occurred before the Old Testament was written, before any of the Old Testament was written. Eleven of the sixteen, so that's only five that were given after there was any written canon of Scripture. In the New Testament, the six that were six dreams in the New Testament were prior to the time in which the New Testament was written. And that tells us the purpose for dreams and visions was to communicate divine revelation to man before there was a written canon of Scripture. So dreams were designed to communicate information from God to man. And what we'll discover is they weren't this kind of subjective information. People, usually when they say, well, pastor, I had a dream, it's all about what to do in their life. It's very self-centered and indicates their self-absorption and their arrogance. That's not the case of any of these biblical dreams. Second thing we need to do is define the term vision. Vision derives from the Hebrew word machazeh, which means a vision, means light, it means a place of seeing, and it also means a window. What that tells us is a vision is a vision was the opening up of enlightenment. 
It's like looking through a window into a room to see something you wouldn't normally be able to see. Now, there's a difference between dreams and visions. Third point, there are at least 15 visions in the Old Testament. There are probably more because many of the books of the minor prophets and major prophets were considered visions, even though the word might not be used. Many of them use the word, but others don't. But there's probably more than 15. And there are seven visions recorded in the New Testament. Now, notice, 15 visions, 22 dreams. That's not a lot. This is not a normal, everyday, frequent occurrence. God is not stand by a standard operating procedure talking to everybody through dreams and visions. It's unusual and it is rare. In the New Testament, there are only seven visions recorded. Those are all given to believers and they are all before the canon of Scripture. Now, I want you to notice, dreams and visions... Dreams went to unbelievers also. Visions only went to believers. Why? And the fourth point, fourth point, in contrast to dreams, which took place while the recipient was asleep and therefore passive, visions included a conscious, rational interaction, often a dialogue between the recipient and God. When, when the first vision is in Genesis 15, Abraham had a vision with God, and they're talking back and forth to one another. So, he, so Abraham is fully conscious. He's alert. He's rational. He's thinking. It's not an emotional state. It's not an ecstatic state. He's not in some sort of ecstatic trance out of his rational mind. It is an opening up of his mind, though, to, uh, to God and to divine revelation. So dreams, dreams are for believers and unbelievers because the recipient is passive. But the, in a vision, the recipient was active. He's communicating with God. So that indicates that, he, that the recipient of a vision had to be a believer because God can't have fellowship with an unbeliever. So unbelievers had, had, uh, uh, unbelievers had dreams as well as believers but only believers had visions. Now, next time, we're going to come back and we're going to look at some of these dreams and visions in detail. We're going to build this doctrine because we're going to come to understand that, that the content of dreams and visions always had to do with something related to God's, the working out of God's plan in history. It wasn't subjective. It wasn't oriented to what was going to happen in the individual's personal life. It had to do with how God was working perhaps through that individual in terms of his greater global cosmic plan for the human race or for the nation Israel. Visions were never subjective, personal things. They always had to do, both dreams and visions, with God's plan for the nations and God's plan for the human race. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that we would be like Daniel, that we would be willing to set our heart, to set our mind, to set our, our thinking, to make that commitment, to make doctrine the number one priority. Because it's only when we have our thinking completely renovated by the truth of your word that we are able to see life as it is and to have the objectivity to make right and good decisions from a position of strength. Otherwise, we're doomed to misery and failure. And Father, we pray that we would be responsive to this challenge and that we would uh, continue to advance in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.